Hey everyone, welcome to Built Not Born, episode 111. For the most part, I would never describe myself as happy or feeling joy as a physician. I never had love for practicing medicine. And I know the difference because I had colleagues who did, but I never deeply loved my work. It was, I can't fail. Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Dr. Nadine Kelly. Nadine Kelly, MD, grew up on the south side of Chicago. She is the daughter of Haitian immigrants. This is a conversation with someone who totally reinvented their career and mindset. Dr. Kelly spent seven years as a practicing pathologist before she was diagnosed with a major clinical depression and totally changed her life and mindset around. She found yoga, became a certified health coach. She started the Yogi MD podcast. She now works with women and people with mental and physical disabilities. She teaches them yoga. She gets their mind right. She gives them hope and courage. In our discussion today, Dr. Nadine and I discuss how health cannot be just a simplistic formula of diet and exercise. You gotta factor in the mental, emotional, social, intellectual, and even your spiritual well-being. Dr. Kelly does a great job of discussing that. And Dr. Kelly talks about productive selfishness, where you first have to be the best version of yourself so you could show up and be the best version of yourself for others. Dr. Nadine and I, recorded this back in July of 2021. I was still figuring out how to do the podcast. I was still getting my flow down. It's a informative conversation with a thought leader that has totally reinvented herself, her career, and the people she impacts. So I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nadine Kelly, the Yogi MD. And remember, life is built, not born. Dr. Nadine Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Joe. I am so pleased to be here. We're excited to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I am Nadine Kelly, retired pathologist. I am a yoga instructor for who I like to call wise women, mature women. I am an ACE certified health coach, and I am a podcaster, host of the Yogi MD podcast. I like to get into all of that, especially the Yogi MD podcast. But before we do, where did you grow up? I grew up on the south side of Chicago. What was it like growing up on the south side of Chicago? Oh my goodness. It was good. I am the eldest, firstborn, first generation American to Haitian immigrants. I am the eldest of three. And I went off to college at the University of Chicago. I did not leave home. I lived at home with my parents and I would change that even to this day. And then I went off to medical school and then wound up 
teaching yoga. But growing up on the south side of Chicago in a predominantly African-American community, being the child of immigrants, it was a little awkward at times, I have to admit, because it was hard to blend the cultures. Trying to be American, but also being raised by Haitian parents who were a bit stricter. So yeah, so sometimes it was tricky to navigate. But overall, I have no regrets. I had a happy childhood. You mentioned it was awkward blending cultures. What did you find awkward about being a a daughter of immigrants in that part of Chicago. Things were different the way they were done in in my home. And my parents weren't authoritarians, but they definitely did have rules. And of course they did because they were investing in their family and they were making sacrifices. They'd left their country. So all of those factors, now that I'm an, an adult too, and a parent, I understand from that perspective that it must have been hard to try to still retain your roots and be yourself, but navigate trying to honor the parts of your culture that are so embedded, but also trying to navigate being in a new culture and fitting in. So, of course, that was being passed down to us kids as well. You're eating this specific type of food at home, for example. And when you go to school, that's not what your friends are eating. They don't know what you're talking about. Or even some things like my appearance. When I was really little, in Haitian culture, little girls at that time, they used to put ribbons in our hair. And so I would go to school with my ribbons in my hair with my braids. And that's not the way things were being done in American culture at that time. And I'd get teased for the way I looked. So just navigating those types of things. Thank you for sharing that. Take us back to, say, 10 years old. You looked around that dinner table. Who was there and what was going on? Interestingly, we did not do dinner together when I was growing up because my grandmother lived with us. She took care of us. This was my maternal grandmother. And she would make sure that all of the household chores were done while my parents went off to work. And part of that was cooking. She was a wonderful cook and she made dinner earlier rather than later. It wasn't so much, that's another cultural issue. It wasn't so much thought of as dinner at a specific time. It was, you ate a bigger meal earlier. So she'd have the food ready for us. So then when us kids got back from school, my sister and I returned at three o'clock, dinner was already ready. And then before you go to bed, you'd have something a little bit lighter. And so my sister and I ate first, then my mother would trickle in and she'd have her dinner and then my father would have his last. What is the most vivid memory of your childhood? Oh my goodness, that's a really good question. One of the most cherished memories I have is hearing the back door open when my mom would be arriving home from a long day of work. And my sister and I being so excited for her to come home and we'd run to that back door to greet her. And she couldn't even really get in without us barraging her with what happened during the day as we wanted to tell her, we wanted to talk to her. We're just bursting with that excitement. Still very close to my mom. Being a parent now myself, I bet that was one of her favorite parts of the day. That's pretty powerful. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. 
So let's fast forward a little bit here. So how did you decide to go into medicine? What led you to be a physician? One of my earliest recollections is always dreaming of becoming a doctor since I was a little girl. And there are pictures and photo albums that we have. Remember when people used to actually take pictures and put them in albums? Yeah. So we have those. And there are pictures of me playing doctor with my um, dolls. And we also had, as part of the immigrant experience, my uncle, who was my mother's younger brother, left Haiti after my mom and came to live with us. And he was going to school to become a doctor. So he was an influence as well. With never really any other thought, never really any other idea of another path. And so I stuck with it, worked super hard to be laser focused to succeed at becoming a doctor. Of all the different subspecialties you could go to after you're in medical school, how did you land on pathology? That's really easy because as I was going through my rotations in my third and fourth year of medical school, they give you these core rotations that you must go through. So you've got to do pediatrics, you've got to do surgery, ob gyne, and a couple of others. Just to make sh- just to see what you like, what fits. Internal medicine was another one. And so, and psychiatry. So I'm going through these rotations and I'm going, wow, I hate this. Or okay, this is not bad, but this is not a good fit for me. Like pediatrics, like I I liked the idea of it, but I didn't feel like a pediatrician. Algae was not in that core curriculum offering, but I met a lovely pathologist who actually taught us in a special class about taking physical examinations and histories. And we got to talking and she invited me to come take a look at the pathology section. And then I thought, wow, this is something that makes a lot of sense. It's calmer. It is collaborative. There are a lot of women in this department, women with young children. And so I thought, this is something that I could see myself doing. And it may be a very good fit for me, not only because of the investigative nature and the calmer pace relative to the other specialties, I thought that I'd be able to manage uh, life-work balance the best. I had the best shot by going to pathology. For our listeners who may not be fully familiar with what a pathologist does, describe the role of a pathologist in medicine. A pathologist is, think like a radiologist. So a radiologist looks at x-rays, MRI, so pictures to make diagnoses to tell the doctor who's taking care of that patient. So say it's an oncologist or a surgeon who orders those x-rays. So the radiologist's job is to tell that doctor what he or she sees so that the surgeon or whoever can have a solid diagnosis so to make a plan going forward. The pathologist, instead of using an X-ray or a CT scan or an MRI scan, uses a microscope mm-hmm. and looks at tissue that has been processed in slide form to make diagnoses, to inform a clinician about a plan going forward based on our diagnosis. 
So if someone say you need to have a biopsy of that to see what's going on, the pathologist grabs the biopsy yes, and they say, Hey, cancer, not cancer, yes. danger, not danger, something exactly. like that. Exactly. Okay. I appreciate that. So how long were you a practicing pathologist? Seven years. Seven years. At one point you walked in the lab, a pathologist, and then one day you walked out and said, this is not for me. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, I do remember that moment because it was very painful because having described my journey as I have so far to you, it was clear that I had a, a strong work ethic and part of having a strong work ethic and coming from a family of immigrants who make sacrifices. Well, you think this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to make sacrifices and happiness or joy was somehow not necessarily something that we discussed discussed explicitly. Not that my parents didn't want me to be happy, but this life was not easy. And so I grew up thinking that anything worth having is not supposed to be easy. And I never really thought about finding necessarily pleasure in my work. And medicine is hierarchical. You find yourself at the beginning of a new transition and you're on the bottom again, having to prove that you deserve to be there. And so I went through my life and my career with this laser focus of having to make it and having to succeed and ignoring pain caught up with me. While there were aspects of practicing that I enjoyed, for the most part, I would never describe myself as happy or feeling joy as a physician. I never had love for practicing medicine. And I know the difference because I had colleagues who did. Not many. If I think back really hard, there are specific examples of people who deeply loved their work, but I never deeply loved my work. It was, I can't fail. And so the turning point was my mental health was catching up to me. And Thank goodness for my social circle, because my husband recognized that I was in trouble on one particular day. He was so concerned. He asked me to go see our internal medicine physician. I got an appointment that evening. I was diagnosed with major clinical depression. And he told me, you are not going back to work. You have to get help. Wow. What do you think he noticed? What spurred your husband to say, you're not going back. You have to go see your internist. I believe it was the defeat that he could see, the desolation. Mm -hmm. It was just like forcing myself to put one foot in front of the other. I wasn't sleeping very well. I was trying to compensate for my misery by seeking solace in exercise. I was exercising twice a day, thinking that would help. And yeah, so it was just my behavior and the way I was talking, the way I looked. Yeah. It's great to have a partner that knows the better side of you and then knows when that better side isn't there. Yeah. Kudos to your husband and kudos to you for listening to him. So what take us from there. So you got diagnosed with major clinical depression, mm -hmm. that you're not only just a podcaster, but you're, you're a certified health coach. You're helping a lot of people. How did you go from there? And then what were the pivots to going not from just diagnosing disease, but actually helping prevent disease? Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you for putting it that way, because that's exactly how I feel that I am best serving. And I feel like myself now, and I feel like now I understand what it means to work, but what it means to work with purpose and to feel connected to my work on a very deep level. 
to feel like I am making the difference that I want to make. And I made that pivot because I had already been practicing yoga. I had been practicing yoga with my mother because she's a cancer survivor. And she stayed practicing with the class she was in. I eventually drifted off and did yoga. I explored different avenues of yoga to see if I liked something more athletic. But eventually I came back to that solace and that peace and that getting to know yourself aspect of yoga by walking into our local yoga studio one evening after I'd already been in treatment for a while. I wanted to deepen my practice and figure out what was next. And they happened to be offering a yoga teacher training program. Even though I was skeptical, I took it anyway. And I'm very happy I did because halfway through the training, I was taught by a beautiful, mature woman, a very gentle yet challenging practice and a light bulb went off. And I thought, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to take the reason I went into medicine the actual practice, the scenario may not have been correct, but the desire, the intention to make a difference, to help people, to serve was there in me. So where could I apply that? I could apply that in my community by serving those who are not traditionally in a yoga class. So older bodies with various physical conditions. And so I thought I could benefit by modifying, I could take that investigation and that detailed nature that I had as a pathologist that drew me to practice pathology and apply that in a yoga setting by taking different poses and modifying them for different people. One of the great things about yoga, I started practicing maybe three years ago, and it can be what you want it to be. It could be the most intense workout you do all week where you're like, wow, that is really challenging to the most gentle, more spiritual thing where there's some movement, but it's more mental than physical. It could be for an Olympic athlete or it could be for your 90-year-old grandmother. Yes. And there's a great quote that you said in one of your podcasts that said, yoga is for anybody and everybody, old, young, flexible or stiff, thin or not so thin. It can be practiced for a lifetime. I think that's one of the best definitions I've heard on yoga. Thank you. Thank you. And that is definitely why I teach. And I believe that it is a system of practices that encompass more than the physical. It's the breath work. It's learning how to focus. It's learning how to meditate. All of those things are wrapped in a yoga practice and they just make a practitioner because it's not about perfection. It's a practice more and more emotionally intelligent, more physically connected, more, more socially connected. Because when you take better care of yourself and you get to know yourself better, you're also better with the other people around you. No doubt. To be the best version for other people, you got to be the best version for yourself first. When you're in an airplane, it sounds almost selfish if the airbags drop and you got to put the, air, the mask on in the airplane. 
thank God I've never had to do that before, but mm-hmm. you could see if you put everyone else's on, there's a point where you just die because you have no air. But if you put yours on first, there's a chance you help double the people that you could before, help two people instead of one. It sounds selfish, but there's a point where there's a, a bit of selfishness to be your best so you can be your best for someone else. Absolutely. And, it, and Absolutely. it's almost unselfish to be selfish, knowing that you got to build yourself up so you can help your kids, your wife, your mom, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whoever, your colleagues. Sometimes I feel selfish when I go for that hour run. Or then sometimes I'm like, wow, I'd be so much better of a dad the next six hours mm-hmm. if I just took one hour in the afternoon for myself. And the next five, I'm better than if I just stayed there for six hours. Does that make sense? And be, be that is spot on. After you took care of yourself, you got healthy. How did you start your own health and wellness practice? After I was finished with my yoga teacher training is I knew I had a path now. It wasn't so vague. So I actually went to, my next step was go to my local assisted living facility and see if they wanted a yoga teacher there. They happened to want one. And so I taught there for some years It was a chair yoga class for various physical abilities and mental abilities too, because some of these patients or people that were residents that were living there had various levels of dementia. So there was also that. There was a local fitness facility that catered to older bodies and taught yoga there and also some low-impact aerobics too. Then I found another fitness facility that catered to an older clientele. So I just started to gain more experience with work teaching yoga to those um, special populations. And then I started to seek out more training. I eventually found a lovely woman who's based in California who taught yoga in the water. And I thought, oh my goodness, what another beautiful medium in which to teach people yoga. So I did training that way. I did some more training with taking more chair yoga classes and for myself to get better. And uh, then that led into the health coaching, which was for me important because I wanted to live more in the world of teaching people about health and wellness and prevention rather than getting help only when you're sick. And then exploring what could health really look like? Because on the surface, I looked very healthy when I was practicing medicine towards the end, those last few years, because as I mentioned, I was working out a lot. I was dieting. I wasn't really sleeping, but if you just looked at me, I looked skinny. So that looked healthy, but I was not healthy. I was not emotionally healthy. I was not socially healthy. I was not mentally healthy. So I wanted to learn more about a more comprehensive approach to health. So I became a an a certified health coach so I could teach a life coaching portion of a healthy seminar at one of those fitness facilities in which I was working that was targeted to women. One of the quotes that I wrote down uh, that you said at least twice in a few of the podcasts I listened to, uh, quote, defining health cannot be constrained by the simplistic formula of diet and exercise alone. What's missing? So there's a multidimensional approach to health that I 
have really taken a lot of time to explore and continue to explore. And I do this, especially in my, with my podcast. So there's social health. If your relationships are not healthy, you're not a healthy person. If your communication with the people around you in your workplace, in your personal life, in your, with your friends, with your family, if you're not working on how to best communicate and show empathy to those people and explore empathy and for others, self-compassion for yourself, you're not a healthy person. If you are not emotionally healthy, Joe, I'm sure people who are very good at stuffing down their emotions, who don't believe they're very stoic, even if you try to suppress them, they will find their way out. So being able to be an emotionally healthy person who acknowledges having emotions, who knows that they are part of the human experience, who can show flexibility in emotions, who can recognize emotions in others, that's a healthy person. Mental health, which is becoming more and more accepted in the United States with time as we're having more discussions about it, thank goodness. Taking care of your mental health is also extremely important. You don't have to be ashamed or you don't have to wait until something is really wrong. It's okay to talk to someone, a professional person, sometimes if you need it. It doesn't have to be a lifetime thing. Sometimes you need an objective person to get you over a hump or to help you navigate something. There's physical health. There is intellectual health. How do you take care of your brain? How do you find your purpose? How do you cultivate curiosity? How do you navigate making mistakes? That's also important, taking care of your intellectual health, what you feed your brain. And then their spiritual health looks different for people. It seems to be this buzzword that causes a lot of angst, but spirituality can mean it's personal. Mm -hmm. It's different for everybody. It doesn't have to be a religion. It mm -hmm. can be just acknowledging that there's something bigger than yourself, that you're connected to something bigger. And what does that mean for you? One of the things you mentioned is your mental health, how you take care of your mind, what you feed your brain. There's a quote that you said, it's not just what you put in your body, it's what you put in your mind. Mm -hmm. So as your physical body, if you ate junk food the, all summer, you just ate horrendously, physically, your body's going to feel bad after those 90 days of horrible eating. You have to take care of your mind. I see some people watch the news, and I'm not talking local news that affects their neighborhood and their kids or their school district. I'm talking to look what exploded six time zones away, what country invaded what country, things that had nothing to do with their day-to-day -day life or their family, and all these like horrible tragedies they're watching from 10 time zones away. And then on top of that, they're maybe watching something on Netflix about a serial killer. Then they're like, I can't get a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. I wonder why. Mm -hmm. So you're watching death and mayhem all day on the news, mm -hmm. right? And then you're ending it with like a Netflix series about a serial killer who they can't catch. And you wonder why you can't sleep at night. <laughs> so, can you speak how your mental diet is just as important as your physical diet? So again, it's an individual approach. And I completely hear what you're saying. It's so easy to go down this rabbit hole of doom scrolling and living with dread 24 hours a day. And you can reinforce that. 
there's a difference between being informed and then going overboard. I would just say to be careful with how you're managing like your time. Where is the line for you where you feel like, yes, I know what's going on, but I don't have to get lost in listening to the same story over and over again in just being told by a different newscaster. Part of the mental feeding your mind is learning to be uncomfortable. So making sure that you don't just let yourself listen to the same things over and over again that reinforce your way of thinking. Having the courage to step outside and read something by someone who doesn't have your same point of view, where you have to question your belief. You have to do some investigation on why you hold that belief. You can still have it, but can you articulate why you believe it? Can you look at other ways of thinking and maybe have a discussion with someone else, a true discussion to exchange ideas, to learn something new? It's curiosity. One of the modern day authors I I like, his name is Ryan Holiday. He writes on stoicism and ancient philosophy. And uh, one of the things he challenges his readers to is to find an author that you disagree with. Maybe it's a politician from another political party or someone who has a cause that you're really not for and read their book and see if you have the ability to read that book and just to see if you could see where they're coming from. Or maybe you could learn something from someone that you think is totally polar opposite of your thought process. And I've done it a few times and it's amazing. You always learn something. It tweaks your perspective and you're like, you know what? I'm not totally on board, but I could see where they're coming from mm-hmm. there, from where they grew up or what their background was. They're not totally crazy to me anymore. And there was actually maybe even a lesson learned in that book. I think Seth Godin calls it empathy. You're like, you know what? I could look through their eyes and I could see what they see. I may not agree with them, but I can see where they're coming from. And I, mm-hmm. I think that just lends to uh, a better world. I totally agree with you. And it, it is empathy. It's being able to say and recognize not everyone thinks the way I do. Mm-hmm. And so then your expectation, you, you diminish that black and white thinking, that hard yes or no, or this or that, that binary thinking that's so damaging. As a culture, here's a big question. What is your personal definition of being healthy? It's in a single word evolution. I used to think becoming a doctor that you just acquire a position or you come to a place and it's like climbing a mountain and you're done. That is not true. That is not how life is. Life is not black and white, life is always changing. And so for me, as I'm getting older, It's about how can I adapt and evolve to the things that are happening around me? Can I accept? Can I adapt to change? And can I continue to become the best version of myself in the moment that I can be? And when you're being the best version of yourself, what are you doing? I feel energized. I feel purpose. I feel loved. I give and get respect from those around me. I feel challenged. I like feeling challenged. You started a podcast that is pretty popular, the Yogi MD podcast. 
And you've had some really big guests on like Seth Godin and Alexandra De Palma. You had some really big hitters on. How do you decide to start a podcast? And uh, what, what kind of challenges you face? And what have you learned from podcasting? Good questions. I started the podcast because I am a nerd. And when I would be teaching my wise women yoga, anytime I came across an article or something that was helpful that, oh, maybe this could be very useful. I'm also a very practical gal. That's why I went into pathology too. I like to make sure that what I'm learning can be applied. So I would take that level of excitement and I want to share something like that I read an article that said something about improving lower body strength improves an older person's chances of diminishing falls or makes them more flexible or is good for the circulation, then I would take that article to class and then I would fashion a practice around that specific finding. So I was finding myself doing that a lot. And so when I was receiving steps, daily blogs, I've been doing that since 2011. In 2018, in the spring, I got this email about the first podcast fellowship. I was afraid to do it. I didn't respond right away. And that's when I knew I had to do it. And then I knew that I would enjoy having a platform like that where I could learn from people and about what's practically helpful to enhance a person's health on that platform. So that's why I dove into podcasting headfirst. And I've been doing it since 2018 nonstop. I have learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about what matters. I've learned about being committed to something that's so deeply meaningful that I do it with 100% passion. And even when I'm fatigued, it's good fatigue because it's not depleting. I've learned to become a better communicator. I've learned more empathy. I've learned not to jump to conclusions. I've learned to stop and listen to what the other person is saying. And if I'm not sure, I don't call myself stupid because I didn't understand it. And that's leftover from medical days. Now I go, I'm not stupid. I'm curious. I can ask a clarifying question. This is how I learn, not by knowing everything, but by asking. So I've learned humility too. I have learned how much of a creative person I am and how much of that was really in me and having fun with the creativity, with the music and my podcast and being able to represent my guest in the best light possible. I enjoy the editing process and, and making the guest shine and making the material shine and, and making the content as engaging yet as clear as possible. And I love putting myself in the listener's shoes. What does the listener need right now? How will this help the listener become healthier? My favorite podcast of yours, and I think the bravest podcast I've listened to of all yours, the one that you had your daughter, Lizzie, mm -hmm. on speaking about her experience with COVID. 
just a brief recap of that episode. From what I got out of your daughter's experience, she basically goes into Grinnell College, went to Grinnell College, and then she is trying to fit in. Maybe she's not the most extroverted person in the room. She actually finds a college that she loves. She finds her group after some work. And then the experience is going great. She's making friends. She's learning. She's involved in activities. And then just when she just started getting some traction, she says, wow, this is great. I'm not introverted. I'm not shy. I actually can do this. I have friends. This is going great. I'm having a great college experience. COVID hits mm-hmm. and just pulls the rug right under her. And she has to deal with all these emotions. And I found that a powerful episode of just being real. And some of the challenges that people went through in COVID especially the college students. You can speak to that. Thank you for sharing. You really highlighted a lot of what I loved about her episode. One of the things that I really discovered about podcasting is what a powerful platform it is and how responsible we are as podcasters because the person who's being interviewed is trusting us to hold this safe space for them. And It was an opportunity, too, for my daughter to speak and process about her experience of grieving, looking at it through the lens of what it was, grieving this process of, as you said so well, I never felt great in high school. I Yes, she had a a group of dear friends, but the school experience was not one that the traditional schooling was just not one that ever really made her feel like she was at her best, even though she knew there was there were parts of her that loved learning and she knew that she was a creative and she knew that she wasn't sure how to feel smart. She knew she was smart, but she didn't really receive that feedback necessarily in the classes she was taking. And also my daughter's a night owl. So going to school at seven o'clock in the morning, 7.30 in the morning was hard. So being able to find this place where she could make this schedule where she didn't necessarily have to go to early morning classes and find subject that challenged her. That school is not an easy school. It was very academically rigorous, but she rose to the challenge and started to finally feel what she knew was missing that, yes, I am smart. This is the way I'm smart. And I can get comfortable in that skin. She was starting to really find her rhythm, but yet knowing how to pull back when she needed to and spend alone time. That's important to her as well. And then to get COVID and to be separated from all of these people and all of these activities and to be in her room doing online classes was very jarring. That's got to be so hard. I can't even imagine what the 20-year-old version of me would respond if I was struggling in this or that. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. through the effort I put forward, I finally found friends. I found my, my niche. I was working on interesting projects with interesting people. And, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, the 100-year pandemic comes in and pulls the rug out of everything. That's got to be really hard. She handled it like a champ. And for having the bravery to go on to speak of it on a podcast, kudos to her. And I wish her much success. Thank you. I'm I'm very proud of her. So she's going back more mature with some lessons. What's your focus on the podcast going forward? What's the most exciting thing you're working on? So I mentioned 
creativity being very surprising to me because I didn't consider myself a creative for a very long time. I've been exploring the different health domains two months at a time over 2020, commenting on being a socially healthy person. Then I moved to emotional well-being. Then we moved to mental well-being. We are moving to physical health in the summer for two months. And then in the fall, it'll be intellectual and the year wraps up with spiritual. Now for intellectual, I've already done those interviews and it's the four topics are going to be making mistakes, managing frustration, fostering curiosity, and life. the last one will be lifelong learning. And as I was editing these different episodes, it really became clearer to me that this was tiny encapsulation of my own learning journey where I finally learned to love learning myself. I wanted that for my kids because I didn't have it. And I didn't have it until 2018 when I started my podcast, really. So I started to making a trailer for that intellectual health part of the podcast. And so there's a little animation. It's very brief. It's a no longer than about 30 seconds or so. It takes the viewer and the listener through a tiny glimpse of my own journey of going through learning to make mistakes and managing frustration and then becoming a lifelong learner. You mentioned making mistakes. Do you have a favorite failure or a failure that thrusted you forward more than any other? Hmm, That's a really good question. I remember a specific moment when I was training for my black belt in Taekwondo. I was really in the mindset of perfection still because I was still practicing medicine then and grades and all that. Like it had to be perfect. It had to look this way. And so I remember sitting in the owner's office with him and talking to him about this specific kick or this specific punching thing that we were working on and not being happy with the way it was coming out. And he said to me, why are you pulling the young tree of the ground and peering at its roots before it's ready? And that has really stayed with me in terms of learning to let go of the end point. It's not always about you. Yes, you want to succeed. You want the thing to be ultimately something that you're proud of, whatever you're creating. But the process is almost more important, the nurturing of the process is more important. You're speaking of martial arts, but that goes right in line with my favorite Seth Godin book, The Practice, mm-hmm. where it's just you show up every day, not because it's your best work, not because you're the best in the world, not because you're the best in, in the school, but you show up because it's today. And you just give the best version of yourself and you can just handle your effort and what you put forward, but you don't control the result and have no say on how many likes you get, what people think about how good that kick mm-hmm. is or how many likes you get on Facebook or how many people dial into your podcast. It's just you control the effort, but you don't control the reward. The reward is out of your control and whatever it is, you just got to be good with it. Yes, absolutely. That's yeah. liberating too. I'm still working on that, but man, that is so <laughs> liberating. When you re- just like, I'm just going to do the best I can, then I'm going to step back. And I, I just did the best work I could. And that's whatever right. the universe thinks of it, that's great. That's mm-hmm. fine. I just got to live with it. 
Stephen Pressfield had another realization that kind of piggybacks onto what you're saying. Not only do you do your best work and you let go of the outcome, but remember that you are not the outcome. You are not your work. You are not your work. When you can realize that's so liberating, some people might think in the American culture, well, that's a cop-out. No, you have the bravery to do the best, most creative work you can because you don't play small then. Because if you're afraid of perfection, you play small. Like I'm going to only do what mm-hmm. works. If I think mm-hmm. I'm going to fail, I'm not going to do it. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I know you wouldn't be podcasting. I wouldn't be doing it if I was afraid to fail because I'm mm-hmm. like, I got no business doing this right now. No business whatsoever. If you told me six months ago, you and I would be speaking on a podcast, I'm, there's just no chance. And you just got to let go of perfection. To be respectful of your time, just a couple of big questions just to run by you. What is your personal definition of success. That's not the end point. For me, success is being able to get up every day and feel the energy, the motivation to move my work forward, knowing what my purpose is and to have it be in line with my values and my beliefs. What book influenced you or changed your mind? Oh my goodness. That's a hard one because I have a little stack right here that I keep on my desk of books that have really influenced me. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Uh, Covey. That's such a money book. That's just the perfect book at the perfect time for just about everyone. And very rarely do I say a book is for everyone. That book is basically for everyone. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a person that wouldn't be helpful. Mm -hmm. That one, Start With the End in Mind. That's my favorite. That is my favorite. Thanks for sharing that. What values do you try to pass on to your kids? The biggest value that I pass on to my kids is to be comfortable in their skin and to be open to figuring out what that means for themselves and not to let anyone else get in the way of letting them make that discovery. If you could go back to that house on the side of Chicago with your grandma and parents, what would you tell those people if you could? I would thank them for everything that they'd done and were doing for us to be here. And I would say that I, I know that it couldn't have been easy. And I really do appreciate and thank them for giving us the lives that they did. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Be you because everyone else is taken. Be you because everyone else is taken. That is fantastic. And I think that's about as good a spot to end as any. Dr. Nadine Kelly, first off, thank you for all your coaching and and thank you for all your great work at the Yogi MD podcast. If people were looking for you and your podcast online, where can they find you? The easiest place to find me is on my website, which has all of the information we've talked about. So www.yogimd.net. That is perfect. Dr. Nadine Kelly, I just want to say a big old namaste. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, It was awesome to speak with you. Really appreciate it. Wish you nothing but continued success in all you do. Thank Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.